Mortimer, episode 28. Thank you for tuning into Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. It is with great honor that I accept this acting role as the first of many, I'm sure. I always knew I was cut out for radio in Borderville, but alas, I have had to postpone acting as I work toward my political ambitions. Well, you'll understand. The sun had not yet risen, and the house was dark and quiet. Mrs. Dixon made her way in slippers toward the kitchen to start the coffee. Her heart was full with all that had happened, everything that had transpired. She took a slow, calming breath and pushed silently through the kitchen doors. Mrs. Peabody was at the table, cup in hand. Another was next to her on the table. She met Mrs. Dixon's eyes. "'I thought you might like some coffee.' "'How is it that you are always up before the rest of us?' "'Mrs. Dixon settled next to her friend "'and warmed her hands on the dainty porcelain cup. "'Truthfully, I hardly slept a wink. "'My mind was a whirl all night.' "'As was mine,' Mrs. Dixon confessed. "'I couldn't stop replaying everything that happened.' "'Mr. Iscariot, I mean, alive all this time,' "'Mrs. Dixon shuddered. "'Oh, it was like seeing a ghost. "'Well, I I was sure I'd lost my senses.' And poor Mrs. Ascariot, Mrs. Dixon shook her head sadly, all that time he was not dead, but had chosen to leave his wife and son. Well, he didn't just leave them, but he left us too. Yes, Mrs. Dixon nodded. Yes, he did. It feels like a thousand pounds has been lifted from my shoulders, knowing who had been sending those terrible letters and that that chapter in our lives has ended. "'I've never seen Neville look so angry before,' Mrs. Peabody shook her head. "'He was positively seething. "'He doesn't express it in many words,' Mrs. Dixon smiled affectionately. "'But Neville is very protective of all of us. "'I believe he was very likely chastising himself "'and not figuring it out by himself. "'Well, it's not Neville's fault. "'Mr. Albright was so clever in his design. "'Of course you and I both know that.' "'How could anyone have discovered Mr. Arbright's plan?' Mrs. Dixon shrugged. "'The most important thing is that we are safe "'and he's behind bars where he and his greedy wife "'will live out the rest of their days.' Ah, "'And now we finally know who Eugene is!' "'Mrs. Peabody's grin was wide. "'Mrs. Dixon's mind spun with the years of memories "'of her mistress's constant chatter about "'some enigmatic figure she called Eugene.' And to think, all this time she was not pining for her husband. It was for the love of another, a man whom she believed she would never have. Insanity from a broken heart, Mrs. Peabody sniffed as she wiped a tear from her eye. And now they're together again, and she shall run the company. 
and Percy and Lily Lou are getting married and will live half the year here in Georgetown and the other half on the farm. Well, not only Lily Lou and Percy, but John is engaged to the elder Mrs Longhorn as well. <laughs> that was unexpected, Mrs Dixon laughed, for almost as soon as the festival ended, John made the shocking announcement. I'm happy for him. I know that he always irritated you, but I felt sorry for him not being made president of the company. He wanted it so badly, you know. He irritates me, yes. Mrs. Dixon took a sip from her cup and considered. Well, John Adams is a first-class buffoon. Deep down, huh? he's a good person, I think. I hope he will be happy. Oh, I've no doubt he will be. Mrs. Peabody took the thermos and added more coffee to each of their cups. And most important, our dear sweet Mortimer is safely home. Mrs. Dixon nodded slowly. I do confess I'm not sure how to feel. Mrs. Peabody put her hand on Mrs. Dixon. It's all right to feel it all. Mrs. Dixon smiled at her friend's words. Everything is as it should be, isn't it? Indeed, Mrs. Peabody nodded. Who knew we would have such a happy ending? Why, well, if it's so happy, then why does my heart hurt? Mrs. Dixon met her friend's eyes. Because, my dear, endings are always bittersweet. The bell at the front door rang into the silence that rested after Mrs. Peabody's words. Mrs. Dixon brushed an errant tear from her eye. Who on earth could that be so early in the morning? Mrs. Peabody followed Mrs. Dixon to the door, where a young man handed her a letter. This is a special delivery for Mr. Mortimer's carriot. It was sent from Chicago. Thank you. Mrs. Dixon closed the door and eyed the envelope curiously. Neville came down the stairs. Who was that? It's a letter for Mortimer. Well, he's not in his room. What? Mrs. Peabody's eyes widened in surprise. Not again. I checked his room before coming down to see if he was ready for breakfast. He's not in the kitchen? No, Mrs. Peabody shook her head. I've not seen him yet this morning, and I, I've been up almost an hour. The two looked at Mrs. Dixon, whose eyes brimmed with tears. I know where he is. The sky had begun to lighten ever so slightly, and he spotted him just where he thought he might be. Proudly perched atop a folding chair, with an easel to the left and a small card table to the right. In the distance, the Esquire, bobbed gently in the bay. John had no idea how Mortimer managed to carry all of those things from the house to the harbour, but there was much that he did not understand about his nephew. John stopped behind the young man, his insides churning, too proud to say what he was about to say to the young man's face. All your life I thought you were nothing but a massive, clumsy, hapless nincompoop. John shoved his hands into his pockets. You have almost zero social skills. You're rude. You have a terrible conversational acumen. You live in your own little world. You pass gas that is noxious enough to kill a colony of humans, and you subsist off the most disgusting diet of sausage, custard, mutton, and sauerkraut. You speak too loudly. You don't give a lick about the social graces. While you have a massive fortune to buy whatever you want, you take pleasure in the most unusual objects. Like that ship you have in the bottle there. John nodded to the table where Mortimer's bottle-boat model of the Esquire lay, waiting to be completed. There was only one thing left to do. Apply the maiden flag to the mast. 
Mortimer continued scribbling on his canvas, as if John was not even there. That boat was crafted out of what anyone else would likely call garbage. But to you, oh no, to you each item is a treasure. And truly, that boat is magnificent. John meant it too, for the model ship was a sight to behold. While it was built in an uncustomary way, the design was stunning, the lines perfect, and the textures one of a kind. It was an honest and true portrayal of the mighty ship that had captured Mortimer's heart. John cleared his throat and forced himself to go on. <clears throat> that, that's not all there is to you. John did not realise that he had an audience, for Mrs. Dixon, Mrs. Peabody and Neville were standing behind him, silently listening to his words. You are also loyal. You care about your nanny. You desire to follow the rules. You care about justice. Maybe a little too much, but you work tirelessly in an effort to make a difference in this world. You manage to save the Esquirer from pirates, though I have no idea how. And you even saved your Uncle Jeb and his family from poverty. What I'm trying to say is... John took a stabilising breath. What I'm trying to say is... I'm proud of you. At the end of his speech, John waited. He waited to see what Mortimer would say. In just a moment more, perhaps two moments more, Mortimer would turn around, his face crossed with emotion and gratitude, and perhaps they would even share a lovely embrace. But Mortimer did not move. Instead, he silently scribbled on. Before John could smack him upside the head, he heard a movement behind him. That was beautiful, John. Mrs. Peabody looked tearfully at her friends. I never... Knew he had it in him. Mrs. Dixon sniffed, dabbing her eyes with her kerchief. I did. John startled at their unexpected presence, and his arms jerked violently, a cry emitting from his throat. The sudden sound of John's movement surprised Mortimer so fiercely that a shriek thundered forth from his gaping gullet, and he flipped backward off his chair. Brown plied boots flung wildly into the air in a whirl of déjà vu. Mortimer Scariot reeled backward and his massive frame careened toward the grassy patch of earth that made up the park outside the harbour. Neville held Mrs. Dixon and Mrs. Peabody back and uh, allowed John to attend to his nephew. John stood next to Mortimer and glowered down at him. "'Where did you come from?' Mortimer demanded with indignation. "'I've been talking to you for a full ten minutes!' John shot back angrily. What? Upon seeing tufts of white poking out from each furry ear, John reached out and yanked them out of Mortimer's ears. I've been talking to you for ten minutes, you idiot. My serenity and peace have been thwarted yet again by the forces of that mischievous tyrant. Eight. Now oh, shut up. John reached down and with a groan, he pulled with all his strength to assist Mortimer into a seated position. Noticing he had company, Mortimer's moustache twitched. "'What is this all about?' "'A letter came for you,' Mrs. Dixon said simply. "'It's from Chicago.' Neville cleared his throat and opened the letter. "'It's from the Bottle Boat Club.' Mortimer's eyes widened. "'Justice prevails!' "'I do believe you shall require this,' Mrs. Peabody held out Mortimer's most cherished item. "'Where did you get that?' Mrs. Dixon's eyes widened in delight as Mortimer took the captain's hat from the cook's hands and placed it square atop his mass of wild hair. Something told me that we'd need it. Neville, read the letter aloud. Mrs. Dixon straightened Mortimer's hat. Mortimer, 
Stand up tall and listen to Neville. Neville began to read. <coughs> to the illustrious, ingenious, esteemed, and virtuous Captain Mortimer G. Ascariot. It is with immense adulation, great pleasure, and extravagant letterhead that we, the Bottle Boat Company of Chicago, United States, do hereby bless this correspondence with the highest invocation and most high honour. Captain Ascariot, we thank you. We are grateful for the letter that you have so expediently composed and sent to us by the reputable and reliable United States Postal Service. We have read and considered all your objections toward those who framed and assaulted you. For in their temporary triumph, they failed to realize that they had also framed and assaulted justice and truth itself. We have therefore determined that this cannot and will not stand. Our team of experts, do-gooders, patriots, sailors and craftsmen, considered each of your concerns and accusations at length. Every last one of the documented atrocities and treasonous behaviours committed by masquerading citizens of good character and deviant law officers caused the hairs on our necks to stand so high on end that our collars moved backward within our jackets. The uproar over your correspondence in our office nearly caused our prized and majestic endurance to jettison the bottle. As a long-standing and dedicated member of the Bottle Boat Company of Chicago, United States, you deserve to be treated with the utmost reverence and respect. You can be sure that we will support, encourage, and defend you at any cost. As the greatest, most established, and most trustworthy bottle boat company in the world, we are doing all that we can to fight against this tyranny from our office here in Chicago. Due to your propensity for building the most intricate and robust bottle boats we have seen come out of the South, your unrelenting quest for truth and justice, your unblemished character, and your flawless lapel, we will be granting you an even higher distinction. There are very few who can even claim let alone prove that they are as committed to honour, justice and truth as yourself. The Bottle Boat Company of Chicago hereby proudly grants you, Mortimer G. Ascariot, the rank of Admiral on this date of August the 2nd, 1921. The rank of Admiral is the highest rank that the Bottle Boat Company of Chicago has the authority to bestow on citizens of this great land. Desired by many and achieved by only a few select individuals of the highest caliber. By accepting the title of Admiral, you do solemnly swear to at all times uphold the values of truth, honor and justice. When you receive this correspondence and placard engraved in your honour, you will need to display the following notation everywhere you go. I, Admiral Mortimer G. Ascariot, pledge allegiance to the Bottle Boat Company and the United States of America. I, solemnly swear to uphold the highest standards of truth and justice wherever my land legs or sea legs may take me. 
whether in the presence of reputable patriots or brazen delinquents. I will hold fast to my commitments to utilise my rank to enforce justice and to bring out the truth, no matter the cost. I vow to protect bottle boats from harm wherever they may be displayed, be it on windowsill, desk or fireplace mantel. I swear to preserve the dignity of ladies and gentlemen of this great nation and the seven oceans of the world. I commit myself to resist the Kurdish barbarians of this generation, to assail all wanton dilly-dallying with a voice of reason, to strive against all jackanapes from the city centre to country road, and, despite resistance and great oppression, I will assuredly press on for the cause and causes of all those beneath my rank. Ahoy! You hereby will now be recognised in every village, town, ship, island and port as Admiral Mortimer G. Iscariot. You, Admiral Iscariot, represent us all in this crusade of a campaign for justice and truth. Yet, with a heart of gold, you will still be magnanimous to all miscreants who repent in the wake of your acceptance as Admiral. To stand against the wind, an admiral is seen and recognised by all with his dignified hat, and always, without fail, a spotless lapel. Now forthwith, Admiral Iscariot, onward to your next adventure. Respectfully yours, the Bottle Boat Company of Chicago. A round of whoops and applause resounded from the direction of the dock. Everyone turned to see where the sound was coming from, and to their surprise, they saw the entire crew of the Esquire poised at the bow rail of the ship. What are they doing there? Mrs. Dixon's jaw dropped in awe. John shrugged. The owner of the Centennial Shipping Line has made a commission. What? Mrs. Iscariot made a commission already? Neville folded the letter and replaced it into the envelope. John turned to Mortimer. Stand up straight, young man. Mortimer thrust out his chest and stood at his prodigious full height. It is on behalf of the President and Board of the Centennial Shipping Line to request of you to take on the role as Admiral of the Mighty Esquire, to sail the high seas, and to locate and commandeer every pirate ship on the high seas. Mortimer's moustache twitched, his eyes intense. Do you accept this commission? I accept, Mortimer cried. He turned toward his beloved ship, and his thundering heart burst with joy upon seeing the maiden flag rise into the pink sky. Aboard the deck, the crew waved and called, their voices echoing across the Winya Bay. Your assignment shall go into effect immediately, John pulled the decree from his lapel pocket. Are you ready to set sail? Yes, sir! Mortimer puffed his chest out even further. John retrieved the Bottle Boat Company's letter from Neville and handed the dictum and the letter to Mortimer. Mortimer accepted them greedily and stuffed them into his pocket. Well, what are you waiting for? Go on board your ship, Admiral! It only took John saying it once. Mortimer shot off like a bullet, his face crossed with eudaimonia. 
He lumbered across the field and toward the dock with surprising speed. His majestic escape was, however, interrupted. Mrs. Peabody threw her hands over her eyes as she saw Mortimer trip. "'No!' the party cried out warnings, but Mortimer's kinetic energy sent his frame flying at least ten feet through the air. With an oomph, he belly-flopped onto the grass and skipped like a rock on water until finally skidding to a stop. "'Ouch!' Neville cringed, but a rare smile tugged at the corner of his lips. With a cry of approval from the crew, Mortimer pushed himself quickly up onto all fours. Once in a standing position, he began to run again, and within moments he arrived at his ship. His crew hoisted him up, and he boarded the deck. Mrs. Dixon, Mrs. Peabody, Neville and John watched as the young admiral moved to the helm. He belted out an order, and the crew got to work. All that remained behind was Mortimer's stool, the table, and a fallen easel with a thick piece of parchment paper attached. On the ground beside the easel lay the beautiful bottled Esquire. Mrs. Dixon picked up the bottle. In the grass next to it was the maiden flag that Mortimer had found at the races last season. Mrs. Dixon felt desperately sorrowful. He didn't finish his ship. But now he has the real thing. Mrs. Peabody brushed the tears from her own cheeks. Here, let me. Neville took the flag and the bottle from Mrs. Dixon. With a dab of glue from Mortimer's bag of supplies, and with expertise that came with watching his squire build bottle boats for the last decade, Neville applied the finishing touch. "'It's beautiful, Neville. Thank you.' Mrs. Dixon clutched the boat to her breast and watched as the great anchor of the Esquire was hoisted from the sea. John wandered to the parchment that had fallen to the ground with Mortimer's first spill. He picked it up. "'This is incredible.' He murmured in awe, gazing at Mortimer's work. Every line, every piece of the ship was perfectly represented and executed. His nephew had never shared his drawings. They had always been his secret, hidden talent. John narrowed his eyes and studied what Mortimer had been most recently finishing. It was the helm, and standing on it was Mortimer himself. John smiled, seeing the look on the captain's face, proud, calm and ready. He glanced up as the boat pushed away from the dock with a groan. Mrs. Dixon took a slow breath, holding her precious bottled boat. "'I am going to miss that dear boy,' Mrs. Peabody put her arm around Mrs. Dixon. "'With Mortimer finally leaving home, your contract is complete. I suppose you shall be going back to Jamaica now, won't you?' The question caught Mrs. Dixon by surprise, for, with all the chaos and drama of the last few days, she had completely forgotten about her mission to go back home. Now that she finally had been offered what she had been fighting for, her throat grew tight, and her chest ached. Neville leaned in on her other side. He wrapped his arm around Mrs. Dixon and Mrs. Peabody. Mrs. Dixon wiped her tear-streaked eyes, sandwiched between the two best friends that she'd ever known. Home. "'I suppose I shall.' She let out a bubble of laughter, a smile wide. <laughs> "'Indeed, I suppose I shall.' And as the rays of sun exploded across the sky in colours of orange, red and gold, the Esquire's sails lifted, alabaster white against a rainbow of colour. And with hearts alight, they watched the Esquire sail into the morning light.'
the epilogue. Dearest Gerard, you will be pleased to know that the magnificent, albeit quaint little citadel that you created has grown beyond its bounds in exceedingly shocking proportions. Upon learning the truth regarding the misinformation you had provided two years ago regarding my sister, concomitant with your usual desire to emancipate yourself from the island without consulting your colleagues, disavowing yourself from the agreement made several years back between the group, as it were, Matilda and I have deemed upon your defection that we would carry on the aforementioned objectives to completion. With pleasure, my dear and very much alive sister Matilda and I have taken over your land, company and trade. While it is my understanding that ye have since moved on to a more menial means of occupying your time, it is with pleasure that I share with you the success of this endeavour. Fear not, old friend, your work has not gone unrewarded. As ye know, fair-grown tobacco has rendered record-breaking revenue, and the Cuban government is rapturous at their fortune. Cuban cigars have infiltrated into the international market as the only cigar to smoke, and fairground tobacco is their primary and only supplier, which I do believe you are aware of, considering your new line of employment with the company. While your staff was initially shocked at the arrival of my sister and I, they were soon mollified by Matilda's innovative and local revisions. Magda in particular has captured my attention. She has a saucy spirit that I believe will be more appropriately served on the high seas. While I do feel a bit reluctant at the incredible gap in fortune between us, it does give me peace to learn that you are spending your days with family. It is with the highest regard and respect that I shall close this letter. Another voyage begins soon. The great pirate Captain Robert has many a village to plunder. Rich as I am, I just can't get over the rush of a successful attack, pillage, and larceny. <laughs> Until the next time, respectfully yours, Robert Hornwasher. No! Gerard shrieked at the letter in his hand. Not Magna! Oh, all my work, all my ingenuity, stolen by those no-good horn washers! Break is over! came a shout from the other end of the row of outdoor latrines. Gerard glanced over with a mix of fury and fear toward his brother-in-law, Jebediah Binkley, who was unforgivably one of the richest men in the country. It was because of Jeb that Gerard was not presently behind bars. An agreement had been made with the state of South Carolina, a sufficient punishment to match the crime. In exchange for a villainous existence of lies, thievery, riches and deceit, Gerard would be relegated to a life of poverty, shoveling manure and monitored under the direct control of his dull-witted brother-in-law. 
Jeb leaned on his shovel and wiped a soiled arm across his soiled forehead, leaving a streak of feces on his face. This ship ain't gonna shovel itself, he grinned down at Gerard. While Jeb's business had rendered finances enough for him to hire hundreds of employees, including those who would be more than happy to manage the manure part of the enterprise, Jeb preferred to do that work himself. While Gerard preferred to lie about and be fed grapes, Jeb wanted to get his hands, and face, arms, and whatever else he could manage, dirty. Gerard had to give it to him, though. While Jebediah Binkley was a certifiable moron, he was an awfully hard worker. Jeb picked up a shovel. I'll race ya. First one to fill all the buckets gets first go at the hose in the yard. Suppressing the urge to scream, curse, or something else equally outrageous, Gerard stuffed the letter into the pocket of his overall pants. And as Jeb whistled a pretty little tune that carried off across the lovely green fields of West Virginia, Gerard Iscariot, founder and former owner of the Centennial Shipping Line, picked up his shovel and got to work. Learn more at www.mortimabook.com. Copyright 2022, M.W. Cedars. Written by M.W. Cedars, the author pseudonym. Audiobook performance by Michael Drew. Neither this author nor affiliates, comrades, patriots, or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations, or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. This book is purely fiction, and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities, or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode.